Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, please give us the humility to, uh, to hear your word. Uh, give us the faith to trust it uh, and give us the strength to obey it. Uh, for Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, so as I was preparing to preach on this passage, I found myself considering the question, uh, who or what caused my eye condition? That's a question I was wrestling with. In considering it, I, I thought I could answer it in at least three different ways, uh, really depending on how much I zoomed in or zoomed out. Right? You imagine like one of those zoom lenses. right? So if you zoom right in on the physical level, for example, you actually take a, a photo of my retinas, uh, you'll see that my eye condition is caused by a particular disease. Right? It's called uh, retinitis pigmentosa, a genetic condition. My dad's got it. Uh, it causes the cells in your retina that usually receive light that enable you to see uh, to gradually thin. Right? That, that's what's happening in my retina. And eventually they can die, which is when you can't see at all. Right? So if you zoom right in on the physical level, my eye condition is caused by this disease, retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, of course, if you zoom out a bit, if you take a look at my eye condition through a, a spiritual lens, uh, you'll see that it might not be just caused by a disease, but, but by Satan even. The Bible's clear that Satan has a hand in much sickness and disease. Uh, Acts 10 verse 38 says, Jesus went about doing good, uh, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The devil had oppressed people with various sicknesses. In Luke 13, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath who hasn't been able to stand for 18 years. And Jesus says, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? But I want you to hear me carefully. I'm not saying every cough and sniffle, every sickness is kind of directly caused by Satan. That's not what I'm saying. But Satan does have a hand in much sickness and disease. So my eye condition is caused by this disease, but the disease is, at least in part, the work of Satan. But if you zoom out again to the kind of widest panorama lens, you see things from God's perspective. You see that God, in his sovereignty, has allowed my eye condition. He's willed it. But God is sovereign even over sickness. In the book of Job, for example, it's God who gives Satan permission to strike Job's body. Right? Job 2 verse 7 says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Right? But what does Job say? In verse 10 he says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? It's the same thing in Job 42, right? The point is that Satan may well have a hand in sickness and disease, but he's not sovereign over sickness, right? God is sovereign. So who or what caused my eye condition? Uh, the disease, Satan, God? Well, in, in one sense, it's all of them, isn't it? Depending on which way you look at it. Now, the passage we're looking at today poses a similar question. The question is, who or what causes the suffering of the church? Who or what causes the suffering of the church? Once again, you could zoom in right in on the physical level, on, on famine perhaps, or drought, or epidemics, or disease, right? on political issues, right? it's the, the religious oppression of Marxist regimes, or the rising tension between Christianity and Islam, or the increasingly militant secularism. 
Maybe it's cultural issues, right? The increase of, of moral apathy and indifference. People just don't care anymore. The, the, the media is running riot. The, the preoccupation with pleasure, with, with kind of hedonism, with, with wealth, with prosperity. Of course, it's not that looking at the suffering of the church through those lenses is wrong. It's not wrong. It's perfectly fine to do. It's just insufficient. It's too narrow a lens. It doesn't give you the full picture. That's what today's passage is trying to do. It's challenging us to to zoom out and take a look at the suffering of the church from God's perspective. Remember, Revelation, 4, uh, Revelation, after the seven churches, we had the, the vision uh, of God sitting on his throne, Revelation 4 and 5. What we've been invited to do in this passage is look at the suffering of the church as if we're sitting in the very throne room of God. How does God see the suffering of his people? And as we look at the suffering of the church from God's perspective, uh, we'll see that one of the main causes of the church's suffering is the furious rage of Satan. You saw it in the passage. One of the main causes of the church's suffering uh, is the furious rage of Satan. Uh, So today, today, uh, we're going to see four things about Satan's rage. We're going to see the setting of his rage. Uh, You can see them in the outline, the the main reason for his rage. Uh, We're going to see how we can triumph over his rage. Uh, And fourth, we're going to see that if we trust in Christ, we'll always be protected from his rage. Four things. Uh, Let's look first at the setting of Satan's rage. It's in verses 1 to 6 of the passage. Uh, In these verses, it's like that the stage is being set for a cosmic battle, a great battle. And as part of setting the stage, the two main characters are introduced. The two characters, the woman and the dragon. Now, you might think that this woman is Mary, right? Uh, Look in verse 5. We're told that she's giving birth to a male child uh, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Right, this woman's giving birth to Christ. She, she has to be Mary. Right? We know the, the Christmas story. Right? It must be Mary. But it, it, it's not Mary. Because look down in verse 17. Right, we see there that the dragon is enraged at this woman and goes off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, I really don't think that's just talking about Mary's other sons. Like, we don't know much about them. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. They're mentioned a few times in the New Testament. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. Right, that the woman represents uh, the fullness of God's people. The fullness of God's people in both the Old and the New Testament. Right, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, the, the, the home of God's people, uh, is often pictured as a mother. Uh, Isaiah 54 verse 1, for example, God says to Jerusalem, uh, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who never, uh, who were never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman uh, than of her who has a husband. Right? Jerusalem's a woman, a, a mother. Same in the New Testament, Galatians 4:26. Paul says, "But the Jerusalem that is above is free." Right? The heavenly Jerusalem. Right? She is our mother. Paul says. This woman symbolizes the fullness of God's people, the the people who give birth to Christ, the the ones that that Christ originates from. And look at the passage. The woman, she's incredibly beautiful, clothed with the sun, more radiant than even the most radiant bride. She's powerful. The, the, The moon is under her feet. The 12 stars on her crown symbolize both the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament, right? It's all of God's people. 
Uh, and look at verse 2. We, we see this woman. She's about to give birth. She's crying out in labor pains, longing for her child to be born. Right, that's what God's people were like in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, verse 17 says, As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in pain, so were we in your presence. So that's this woman in verses 1 and 2, right? God's people, in particular Israel, writhing in pain, right? Longing for, for Christ to be born, God's promised king to be born, to set all things right. So that's the cue for the second character to come onto stage, right? The dragon. We know from down in verse 9 that this dragon is the devil. It's Satan. In the Old Testament, the symbol of the dragon was really a symbol of everything that was opposed to God. Sometimes called the Leviathan, if you look it up, like this ancient dragon. So I'll give you some verses. Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14. There the dragon's associated with Egypt. Isaiah 27, verse 1, it's connected with Assyria and Babylon. Ezekiel 29, verses 1 to 4, it's Pharaoh. Right? The point is that behind all these oppressive rulers, these uh, oppressive regimes, uh, is the ultimate, the supreme opponent of God and his people. It's Satan. Uh, the fact that the dragon's red symbolizes uh, his murderous rage. His seven heads and crowns take us back to Psalm 74. It speaks about how Egypt, they were the superpower of their day, and they thought that their power was invincible. They were completely sovereign, seven crowns. And the dragon's ten horns take us back to the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Right? It's really about the ruthlessness of the dragon's power. So the two main characters are on stage, and in verses 4 to 6, the drama unfolds. You see there, the dragon uh, sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky with his tail. He flings them to the earth. And some of you are like, we can't take this seriously. I mean, I'm a scientific, modern, rational type thinking. I can't, this didn't happen, right? But actually, we're not supposed to read this literally, this particular incident. I think like Jewish poetry is nature poetry. When things are going well, the poets speak about hills dancing for joy and trees clapping their hands. I don't think we're supposed to believe that actually happened either. Right? When things aren't going well, it's like stars are falling from the sky. The point is that all of creation is affected by what's going on in the spiritual realm. There's not this vast distance. right? Everything's interconnected, uh, whether for good or for evil. And the dragon sweeps the stars out of the sky and he stands before the woman uh, so he can devour her child. Pretty, pretty grotesque picture. right? The woman, she's kind of the picture, like she's ready to go. In labor, the baby's about to come out, and the dragon's almost literally between her legs. Uh, and the moment the child comes out, he's going to devour it. Uh, of course, in the Gospels, we see some of the dragon's attempts to devour Jesus, this male child. Uh, you remember Matthew 2, he attempts to devour Jesus by Herod's plan to kill all the male babies in, uh, in and around Bethlehem. Uh, but God's already warned Mary and Joseph to go down to Egypt. Luke 4, he attempts to devour Jesus by getting the crowds in Nazareth uh, to throw him off a cliff. Right? Jesus just walks right through them, we're told. John 8, the dragon tries to devour Jesus by getting the crowds to stone him to death, uh, but Jesus hides himself and slips away. Right? The, the, the dragon repeatedly tries to devour Jesus. Ultimately, he tries to destroy him on the cross. I bet every time God snatches him away, verse 5. 
until ultimately he snatches him away to his heavenly throne through his uh, glorious resurrection and ascension. So now Christ rules as God's king uh, over all nations, every nation. The section ends in verse 6 with this woman fleeing into the wilderness. Right? She knows that because the dragons missed out on Christ, he's going to turn his rage towards her. And what do we know about the wilderness? Right? In the Old Testament, uh, the wilderness was a, a, a sort of a, a different kind of place because it was a, a place of both security and real testing. Right, testing for God's people because they weren't in the promised land yet. Right, That was their ultimate destination. And there was all sorts of suffering and hardships along the way. So it was real testing, but also security because in the wilderness, God always protected them and guided them and provided for them. So in verse 6, so we see that it's no different for us as the church, as God's people. Right, As we live in the wilderness of this world, uh, notice that the woman goes to a place that has been prepared for her by God. God's not surprised by this attack of the dragon. He's completely in control. As she goes there, that God might take care of her. That God would continue to strengthen her and nourish her. And she goes there for a limited time. Right? That's what those uh, 1260 days is about. Thanks, Rob. Right? 1260 days. Right? Like lots of numbers in Revelation, it's a, it's a symbolic number. Uh, The background here is that between the Old and New Testaments, God's people uh, were under the power of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And when Alexander died, he broke his kingdom up into four sections. Israel was caught right in between. Uh, Up in the north uh, was uh, what was called the Seleucid Kingdom. And down in the south was the Ptolemy Kingdom down in Egypt. Right? For years, those two kingdoms fought in and around uh, Israel. They fought these brutal battles until finally the northern kingdom won, right? the Seleucids. Uh, and the ruler of the Seleucids was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, great name, not a great guy. He resolved to destroy the Jews. Right? Uh, he made it a capital offense to, to go to the temple a capital offence to even read the the Jewish scriptures. He he tried to kill every single Jewish priest. And the Jews fought back. You might have heard of this guy. They were under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. For three and a half years, they fought these incredibly uh, bloody battles against the Seleucids. Eventually they won. Right, but for the Jewish people, that three and a half years, it was kind of branded into their collective psyche. Right, it was seen as the, the ultimate period of suffering, at a time when the forces of evil raged against God and his people. And if you calculate it on a, on a kind of standardized 30-day-per-month calendar, what's three and a half years? It's 1,260 days. It's symbolic. It symbolizes this whole period between Christ's first and second coming, a period that John's seeing when Satan and his evil forces rage against God and his people, just like they did under Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's the setting of Satan's rage. What's the the main reason for his rage? It's in verses 7 to 12. Look, in verse 7, we've got this situation where the archangel Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and his angels. What we're doing here is getting a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm as the events of verses 1 to 5 take place on earth. Right, Jesus' uh, death and, and resurrection and ascension is happening in verses 1 to 5. Right Now, uh, in 
our context, we don't talk about angels very much, uh, but the Jews believe that angels often fought great battles on their behalf. We don't have time to go into it, but if you read Daniel chapter 10, there's another example where the angel Michael fights on behalf of God's people. And verse 8 makes it clear uh, that Michael and his angels defeat the dragon and his angels. So look at verse 9. Oh, we're told twice in, in our English translation, three times in the Greek, uh, that God hurls the dragon down from heaven. He hurls him out. He hurls him out three times. He hurls him out. Uh, some people uh, think this refers to a kind of the fall of Satan before creation, uh, you know, before the, the creation of the world. But, but it really can't refer to that. Right, it's tempting, right? But, but throughout the Old Testament, Satan clearly has a place in heaven. I already quoted some verses from Job 1 and 2, right? Satan is in the heavenly courts speaking with God. So how can, it can't be before creation. This is talking about how Christ defeats Satan. Right? How Christ defeats Satan through his work, which has just been summarized in verse 5. His birth, his life, his death, he's snatching away to God's heavenly throne. There's a great defeat of Satan. Now you see the connection. It's only because Christ defeated Satan on earth through his death and resurrection that Michael and his angels can defeat Satan in heaven. It's Christ's work that is the key. The rest of verse 9 gives us three names for the dragon. The ancient serpent. That that takes us back to Genesis 3. The serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. Uh, the serpent who, who is also the devil, right? Christ says that the devil is the father of lies, the master of deception. When he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language. Right? And one of the main ways uh, he tries to deceive us is by accusing us. Right? That, that's what the name Satan means, the accuser. It, it's a legal term, right? Describing the, the, the fact that Satan's main aim is to accuse us before God. This one's a sinner. They deserve to be condemned. They, they deserve to be killed. So this war between Michael and the dragons more like a vicious legal battle. I don't know if Adam's listening. You know, he's going to be excited about that. But it's like two lawyers going hammer and tong in court, arguing their case. But the point is that because of the work of Christ, the verdict is certain. The verdict is certain. Satan and his accusations are thrown out of God's court, never to return. And look in verses 10 to 12. It's it's a cause of great rejoicing. Salvation has come. God has defeated the dragon. God has has snatched Christ up to his heavenly throne. He's given him all authority to rule over his kingdom forever. It's a tremendous moment of victory, a cause of rejoicing for all in heaven. But not all good news for us who still live on earth. You see that? Woe to those who live on earth because Satan's been hurled down to earth and he is full of fury. Satan knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is short. But in the meantime, he wants to cause as much damage as possible to God's people. Uh, When the uh, Allied forces landed in Normandy on the 6th of June, 1944, known as D-Day, the decisive battle of all of World War II was fought and won. From that moment on, uh, everyone knew that Nazi Germany had been defeated. But do you think that they just laid down their weapons? Said, okay, you got us. No. They wanted to cause as much damage as they could. In the meantime, many lives were lost until they finally surrendered. 
in verses 1 to 5 of this passage, we see that the decisive battle of all of human history, as Sophie said in the kids' talk, has been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. In his birth, in Christ's birth, it's like God invaded our world. Right Through Christ's life, death and resurrection, he defeated Satan and all his evil forces and hurled them out of heaven. So Satan knows he's defeated. He knows his time is short. He knows that Christ, the glorious king who reigns over every nation, could return at any moment. But in the meantime, he wants to cause as much damage as he can to God's people. So how do we triumph over his rage, his fury? Three ways in verse 11. Have a look in verse 11. First, we triumph over Satan's rage by the blood of the Lamb. Satan's main weapon against us, uh, weapons against us, are his accusations. Oh, we've experienced this, right? Satan's not able to accuse us in the heavenly court, but he can whisper in our ear, uh, you, you know, you, you, Aaron, you're just a miserable sinner. Right? You, you deserve to be condemned. You, you deserve to be shamed. You, you deserve uh, to, to, to die for, for how you proudly rebel against God, the source of all life. Right? Satan can get in our ear and accuse us. Right? And, and apart from Christ, he is absolutely right, isn't he? We are sinners. We do deserve to be condemned. We do deserve to die. But through Christ's blood shed on the cross, we can triumph over those accusations of Satan. That's the point here. right? I spoke about this at Easter. You remember that in the Old Testament, God asked his people to sacrifice a lamb in their place as a substitute to take the condemnation of death that they deserved for their sins. But we all know that the little lamb isn't really a substitute for a human being, for you or me. Right, so that all those lambs just were signposts pointing to Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God, the one who died to take away the sins of the world, the one who was condemned to death in our place. So when we trust in Christ and his blood shed on the cross, we triumph over Satan. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says, Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is is the one who condemns? Uh, No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, uh, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You get the picture here, but because of Christ's blood shed on the cross, Satan has been hurled out of heaven, never to come back. What does that mean? This is what Paul's saying. He's saying Satan cannot accuse you in God's court. He cannot condemn you in God's court. He cannot bring any charge in God's court. He can't even enter God's court. The only one in God's court is the one who loves you, who died for you, and who prays for you, who intercedes for you, who says to his father, this one is mine, they're covered by my blood forever. That is why nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8. We can triumph over Satan first by the blood of the Lamb. That is what covers us, covers our sin, defeats every accusation. And second, we can triumph over Satan, much briefer on these two, uh, by uh, triumph over Satan by the word of our testimony. But the only thing that can save us from certain condemnation and death is the word of the gospel. The good news of Christ uh, uh, triumphed over Satan, his death and his resurrection, uh, so we can triumph over Satan as we hold fast to that gospel as we testify to that gospel, just as Pete and Emily did earlier. And we testify no matter what the cost, which, which leads to the third way 
we can triumph over Satan. In, uh, at the end of verse 11, which is by being willing to die for the sake of Christ. Uh, that includes a willingness to die physically, and maybe uh, if some of us live long enough in Australia, that'll be a reality for us. I don't know. But even for those of us who aren't killed uh, for being Christians, we're still called to die, aren't we? Remember Jesus' call? Anyone who follows me is called uh, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That, that, that's costly. Giving up your life. Robert, in Mark 10, Jesus assures us that it's worth the cost. These verses, Mark 10 uh, from verse 29, Truly I tell you, Jesus says, that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the sake of the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. But some of you have recently become Christians. Some of you are looking at the future and thinking the cost for following Jesus seems to be just ramping up. Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the cost? If you follow Christ, you might have to leave your, your home, your possessions, your family. You, you might even have to lose your life. Is it really worth the cost? Jesus says yes. He guarantees that you will never miss out. You will never be shortchanged. Because spiritually speaking, in following him, you will receive 100 times as much, he says. But that is an excellent deal, right? If after church I said to you, look, you can come to this thing, but I, I, I want to be up front, like I, no, no bait and switch here. It is going to cost you, it'll cost you $1, right? But if you pay that dollar, I'm going to give you $100. Right? That's a good deal, right? That's a real cost. You pay the cost. But the return is just phenomenal. Like Jesus is saying that's what it's like, spiritually speaking, uh, when we're willing uh, to die, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. Are we willing to, if we're willing to die for the sake of Christ. So we triumph over Satan by the blood of the Lamb, uh, and when we know that, we'll, we'll hold fast to the word of our testimony and even be willing to die for the sake of Christ. Uh, verses 13 to 17 assure us that, that if we do that, as we hold fast to Christ, uh, we'll be protected from Satan's rage. Have a look, verse 17. Uh, Satan has been hurled down to the earth, uh, so he pursues the woman. Right? It's like we're going back to the end of verse 6. Right? He pursues the woman, that's us, God's people, uh, and his intention is to destroy us. Uh, but in verse 14, God gives uh, the woman some eagle wings. Right now, not many of you have your eagle wings. I'm a fan of Sufjan Stevens. He often wears uh, wings on stage. But uh, that's not what we're like. This is a picture uh, of how God will always strengthen us to flee from Satan's schemes. That's the that's picture. Uh, so once again, the woman flees into the wilderness, a place God has prepared for her, to care for her, uh, to, to, to kind of nourish her. And this is the picture. Like in, Israel was in the wilderness and they were cared for and nourished by God's word and his presence. So also we, as we live in the wilderness of this world, are going to be cared for by God's word and his presence. And be assured that it will not last forever again. Uh, it will only be for time, times, and half a time. That's another way of saying three and a half years. 42 months. We had that last week in, in Rob's passage, right? 1,260 days. The point is that God is in control. He's sovereign, not just over sickness, but over the suffering of his people. And there is an appointed end to that suffering. In the meantime, it will be hard. 
Uh, not so much because of a physical assault, although that's what some Christians experience. Uh, but in verse 15, have a look. Uh, it's going to be hard, but because Satan's going to try to destroy us by spewing this river of water out of his mouth. What does Satan spew out of his mouth? Lies. False teaching. Deception. This is a picture of the, the flood of Satan's lies in the world. Uh, but verse 16 assures us that the God is going to act to protect us, to preserve us in the truth. Uh, in this case, he gets the earth in the wilderness to, to open its mouth and swallow Satan's lies. It's a bit like number 16. You can go and read that later on. Uh, the story, there's three families. They're swallowed up by the earth. Why? But because they've rebelled against God's uh, word, his truth, and in so doing, they've threatened the security of God's people. So God acts to protect his people in the wilderness. Same deal here. The point in this section, verses 13 to 17, is that as God's people, we are absolutely secure, even in the midst of Satan's rage. So who or what causes the suffering of the church? Well, the answer to this passage is clear, isn't it? At least in part, it is Satan's furious rage. So we should avoid two errors. We should never underestimate Satan. He hates Christ. He hates us. He'll do everything he can to destroy us. Don't underestimate him. But don't overestimate him, of course. Because he can't destroy us. I don't live in fear. Through the blood of Christ, God has triumphed over Satan, so we can triumph too. As God enables us to trust in Christ, to hold fast to Christ, until our journey through the wilderness of this world, with all its hardships, until that journey is complete, we reach our heavenly home. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this, your word. Uh, we thank you for the warning that it gives us uh, about our great enemy, uh, the devil who prowls around seeking to devour us, uh, seeking to uh, destroy us. Uh, but we also thank you for the great assurance this passage gives us uh, that through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ we can triumph over Satan and all his evil forces uh, and for the assurance, uh, Father, that you will protect us, that you will preserve us in the truth of the gospel to the very end. Uh, please strengthen our faith in this gospel this day and help us to hold fast to Christ. In his name, amen.